Hi friends. I was recently invited to be on a podcast and as soon as I heard the title of that podcast and so she left, I thought, Hmm, I want to know about this. What I found is that the podcast follows entrepreneurial women who have left the corporate world or steady jobs in order to pursue their passions. And they've had to navigate many obstacles and ultimately form a level of trust in themselves and they're changing the world. And so the podcast, and so she left interviews, these incredible women. So you can imagine how honored I was to be a guest on the show. I think that I was so excited to be on it because as soon as I meet a woman or anyone who has left a steady, clear path to go their own way, I'm all in. I'm curious. I'm engaged. I want to know why did you leave that steady job? Why did you leave that place that all of your family members have lived in for years? Why did you uh, take that leap? Go on that adventure. Why did you veer from the straightforward path? How did it go? And what did you face along the way? And what did you learn about yourself? So on the flip side, to be asked those questions about my own journey just felt so exciting to talk about. I could have chatted with Catherine, the host, and the whole Consulta team forever. <laughs> I love this topic. And so we had a glorious chat we talked about how I left my professor position. We talked about the many different changes that I've made in the last several years to pursue an intentional life. We talked about the challenges that I have faced along the way and ultimately what has led me to keep grounded and really feel secure in myself enough to keep going the course, even when things are very uncertain as they always are. <laughs> I think you're going to love this episode. And so I wanted to share it here in my heart of the story feed so that you didn't miss it because it's so inspiring. I deeply encourage you to check out the other episodes on And So She Left. They also graciously um, allowed for me to share some bonus content on there. So you'll see that I have two episodes on their feed. Uh, my dear producer, Michelle Rado was also interviewed by them. So you should to check out her episode as well. Without further ado, here is my conversation with And So She Left. Hi, I'm Catherine Vesilopoulos. Starting my own venture wasn't easy. After a decade working in the corporate world, I realized that so many things were out of my control, like layoffs and changes in direction. I didn't like the instability. I didn't want that to define my whole career and professional story. And so I left. I started my own company and achieved more than I ever imagined. 
Now I'm on a mission to share stories from extraordinary entrepreneurs who are changing the world and who never gave up on their vision. In our last episode, we talked about legacy. If we're lucky, our life stories persist, resounding long after we've moved on to our next chapter. But sometimes we need a bit of help to share our stories with the world. As soon as she was old enough to read, Nadine Kenny Johnstone fell in love with books. She saw the library as her home away from home, growing up on Chicago's South Side. And books have been a constant companion throughout her life. They've helped her to navigate relationships with her parents and friends and simply make sense of her environment. Loving literature and connecting with others who share her passion has also presented Nadine with gifts. She's tough, she's resilient, and she's overcome immense challenges like severe burnout and panic attacks. Recognizing the power of the written word to strengthen personal connections, Nadine became a full-time writing coach and founded WriteWell. It's an organization that seamlessly combines wellness and writing through retreats and workshops. And on her podcast, Heart of the Story, she shares some of the incredibly intimate personal stories of writers she's worked with. In our conversation, Nadine opens up about her personal struggles with being severely overworked, the invaluable lessons she learned as a child about persistence, and the advantages of having the freedom to pivot throughout her journey. She also speaks about the impact of personal stories and her mission to help as many women as she can to share the most difficult and vulnerable moments in their lives with the world. Hello, Nadine. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. We're really excited to be talking to you today. Oh, I am so thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm really curious to know more about your current endeavor called Write Well. Tell me more about that. Yeah. So I lead writing and wellness workshops and retreats for women. And it is one of my greatest joys. I was just talking about it with my son last night. He's 10 and he, for some reason, was asking me about what life will be like when he goes to college. And he mentioned that he wants to be a sculptor. And he said, but how can you make a living doing that? And I said, buddy, if I had thought about how to make a living as a writer, I probably would have quit. Essentially, I lead a lot of online workshops. I have a writing community and uh, we call ourselves the Writer Workout Community and we meet every Monday on Zoom. I give craft talks and prompts and then we write together. It's like a workout for our creativity and we celebrate and help each other through different periods of life. In addition to that, I lead other types of writing workshops, but then my retreats are a true blend of writing and wellness. So sometimes they're for non-writers and I just include journaling and in part of the wellness things that we do. And sometimes they are more writing centered, they're writing intensive and I sneak wellness into the things that we do. How did you get started in, in writing? When did that, the writing bug come into your life? 
<laughs> Very early on, I was a total book nerd. So I grew up on the south side of Chicago and the West Lawn Public Library was my second home. I loved books. Essentially, when I came out of the womb, I have been a book lover. I would walk home from school reading books as I would walk. <laughs> one time, one of my friends said, you know, I don't like sitting next to you at the lunch table at school because you just read the whole time. So I I mean, I just love books. And I wrote my first novel when I was in like third or fourth grade. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Prisoner of Fate. It was very (sighs) serious. And um, but then when I went to college, I was going to be a nutritionist because I had a very deep curiosity about health and what we put into our bodies and how that affects us. And then I got to University of Illinois and took one chemistry class and almost flunked out of college. And I had to turn things around and I switched to an English major. I took one really, really pivotal writing class my junior year and there was something there. It was like a spark was reignited inside of me and the teacher was incredible. And um, she told me there was something called an MFA that you could go to graduate school and basically just spend two years writing a book with guidance from incredible professors. And I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> this is an actual thing. You can, you can do this as a graduate program. Uh, kind of the rest is history. But I went to Columbia College in Chicago and um, I was just from morning until night completely consumed in words and it was one of my most creative and productive periods of my entire life and I worked at Chicago Magazine as a fact checker and they let me write a few articles so I got to be in the world of professional magazine writing which was very very fun and it was just almost I look back and I'm like what a glamorous life I had for a couple years there I would go to Chicago take the train in walk to Michigan Avenue, go to this beautiful magazine office and just be in the midst of these incredible writers. And then I would walk to night school at Columbia. And then on my weekends, I would just work on my book all day long. And I spent two years doing that. And it it was really great. And then I became a professor and then I wrote books and on and on it goes. But writing has been everything to me. You did a lot early on, which is really (laughs) impressive. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But before people, you know, think that, um, I don't know, I, I resist the urge to make it seem too easy or too everything went smoothly because what I often talk about too is that when I applied to graduate school, I was rejected by eight out of the 10 grad schools and two of them waitlisted me. And I think really the only reason why I got into Columbia is because I hounded them via telephone every week (laughs) until they finally accepted me. I had a lot to prove. I was 21 when I entered my grad school program, and I was in there with people who had actually lived quite a life, uh, Mm -hmm. people in their 30s, 40s, and 50s. And my writing was very naive and elementary when I started that program, and I owe 
that program for really teaching me what writing is and how to be a lifelong writer. It was, I don't know what, where I'd be without that program. What kind of values did this program bring into your life? You know, it was different than what most people think of with an MFA program. A lot of MFA programs, you come in with drafts already created and then you workshop them and there's very heavy editing and sometimes there's really kind of a cutthroat mentality. Columbia was completely different. They focused on the developmental aspect of writing. And so many of my initial classes and workshops were us sitting in a semicircle, visualizing our scenes. What would they look like? What would our stories look like if they were a movie in our minds? And then acting out the gestures with our bodies and then telling the stories out loud verbally before we ever put pen to page. And then we would write in class longhand in a notebook. Computers were not allowed. And then towards the end of the semester, we would bring in drafts that the teachers would never grade and mark up. They would just kind of collect them over time. And when they finally felt like you were onto something, they would read anonymously excerpts of your pieces out loud to the workshop group. And then the people in the group would just repeat which lines and details were working well. And constructive criticism was really formed into questions. It was like, what do you want to know more about as a reader when you or when you hear this person's story? What makes you curious? What characters do you want to know more about? So it was everything and it, it completely um, imprinted the way that I teach writing. That's an interesting feedback system where you get it instantly and you get it from your peers uh, mm-hmm. and you get to hear about what they want to hear next in the story or what do they want to hear developed in the story versus what's mm-hmm. something that's less interesting. Uh, and I guess that guides you into your writing process. Do you remember any stories that stick out? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, all year, my freshman semester, none of my stories were read out loud. <laughs> and then finally, I wrote a story that was quote unquote fiction based on nonfiction about a boyfriend that my dad did not approve of and just how um, tension filled that time was of navigating that landscape. And that was the first time that the professor was, you know, you could tell that she was just like, ah, you finally understand conflict and how conflict drives a scene, you know, Mm -hmm. like something needs to happen in your stories. Because up until that point, I was just uh, ruminating on the page. It was a lot of just thinking on the page rather than scene driven work. It just felt more like maybe journaling as opposed to having an arc to a story. 
Completely, completely. And, (laughs) you know, I learned so much more about my writing from the other stories that I heard from the individuals in that cohort. And and there were incredible individuals in that cohort, um, like Ingrid Rojas. Um, she just wrote a book about maybe a year or two ago that has won incredible awards. And the professors that I studied under were stellar. So it was honestly more about what was being modeled before me than even about my own work. I learned so much from the other people there. Can you describe maybe what your parents' influence was on your writing and your love of reading? Yeah. You know, uh, a few different things. One, I I think it might've been my mom, but them getting me a library card was I don't even think they understood how pivotal that would be oh, for me. It that's gave me the a best. sense of that's the best yes. as a kid. Yes. Yes. It gave me such a sense of agency. And um they loved that I loved reading, though neither of them and and I should say my parents are divorced. And so um, my mom and father divorced when I was very young, one years old. I was actually born in Hawaii. My father was in the military there. My parents got divorced and um, we ended up moving back to Chicago where they're from and my mom remarried. And so I grew up with my mom and my stepdad, um, whom I called dad, and then my sister. So my mom and dad really, neither of them were readers. And so I I never really saw it modeled, but I had this, this deep love of books. Well, my father, whom I, um, I spent Sundays with him, he was a big reader, um, but of more technical books. And so like computer software books. And so our kind of bonding thing that we would do together is go to bookstores. That was how we learned to kind of like navigate our relationship, even though we didn't have a ton of time together. And so there was that. And then as I was growing up, my mom and stepdad, um, they really encouraged whatever I wanted to do. And they, I never had the, um, you can't do that, or you have to go for a more practical, lucrative career. That that pressure was never on me because they didn't grow up in that kind of environment. They both grew up um, like very hardworking, just kind of make your own way. And um, then I think that they were just excited for me to... Um, be in an area of knowledge and learning that I loved. So when when they saw my report card that freshman year of college and saw that, you know, chemistry and my other nutrition classes were, were not going so well, um, they told me really quickly that I had to turn things around because they weren't going to pay tuition for for me to (laughs) waste time and party my behind off. And so um, when I switched to an English major, I think they were all just relieved because they knew that was an area that I loved. And then when I went to grad school, my mom was the one who said, someone I know has a daughter who's an intern at Chicago Magazine. You should really, really apply for an internship there. You should, you should, you should. And after her like eighth urging, I finally did. So all along, they have been incredibly supportive of 
me as a writer. And and when I recently left my full-time professor job a couple of years ago, I was, I was, um, self-conscious about how maybe my mom would feel about that because I knew it was a great sense of pride that I was a professor, given that most of the people in our our family, um, well, none of them had ever been professors. And like I said, like I was the first to go to college. And so when I said, mom, I'm leaving my professor job and I'm starting my own business, I, I didn't know if there would be kind of like a pinch of like let down. And we just talked about it the other day. And she said, I couldn't be more proud that you left something stable in order to follow your heart, essentially. I love that they are um, supportive of the creativity and the imagination that comes with, you know, writing and being in the creative arts and Mm -hmm. that they didn't push you into some business endeavor or anything that didn't, didn't resonate with you. Yeah, and I, I think that because um, my mom, my dad, and my father, they all kind of had to um, follow a non-conventional path, or they at least all chose to follow a kind of non-conventional path. So I think that's why they had more tolerance for it. So my mom went from being a bank teller to a bank manager and then left that and now um, is a massage therapist at a hospital and and helps women basically like rehabilitate after they've given birth. It's a job she loves, loves, loves. And um, when I was going into grad school, my dad um, was basically taking night classes to get a bachelor's degree. And then my biological father, he did a bunch of night classes and then got a million different kinds of certificates. And uh, he his focus was kind of software and um, a lot of work with computers. But it's like each of them had to make their own way without having any models because um, my grandparents, all of them on on all sides were really like blue collar workers, truck drivers. Um, My grandfather, other grandfather worked for the railroad. And uh, so none of my parents had this road modeled for them and they had to go their own way. And so I think they encouraged that. It sounds like there's a lot of determination involved in taking your your fate in your own hands it it just shows that you don't stay in the same place for too long if that's not what makes you happy Your, your family has that thread in it I think based on what you're telling me and so do you find that you also have that ability to change directions to take decisions or to make decisions quickly um in order to to satisfy what's happening in your life at any given moment yeah, I, I think what I've learned is that nothing has to be permanent. You can change your situational setup. Uh, you don't have to stay in something that makes you unhappy, even if it's a great thing. And even if it's something that you worked really, really hard at, leaving it doesn't have to mean failure. It doesn't have to mean anything. It means that it was a period of your life that was successful and satisfying for what it was. And then 
you changed and it changed and it was time to move on to something else. So it helped erase this stigma around leaving. Mm -hmm. Truly, I think that's really what it is, is that there wasn't a sense of, oh, if you don't stick this out, then there's failure or you're betraying the industry or or what have you. Um, So it was that. It was a fostering a trust in myself. Um, They modeled that for sure about how do we take leaps that might seem impractical to other people. And they were all um, very innovative. Like we didn't come from means. And yet if my grandmother would always say, when there's a will, there's a way. And if you want something, you figure out a way to make it happen. Like when money was tight, right? If you grew out of your winter boots and you didn't have new winter boots, then what you do is you put plastic bags over your socked foot and then you put that foot into a gym shoe and now it's a waterproof shoe. (laughs) 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 It's just stuff like that. You, You make it happen. I remember when I was living on my own in grad school, you know, I had a tiny studio apartment in Lincoln Park in Chicago. It was like, oh, well, I run out of toilet paper. I'll just use Kleenex, you know? <laughs> like there's That's a, it. Make it work. <laughs> you, make, <laughs> you just make it work. Exactly. Oh my God. And so speaking of toilet paper, I'm going to go to the pandemic. <laughs> the pandemic now just pops oh, into my head. Oh, what a good transition. <laughs> Look at you. <laughs> that I, was I, a great segue. Yes, thank you. Um, what I was going to say is you were a professor for a while and then you get to this the moment of the pandemic. And I want to hear about you know, how did that transition happen? Or if there was, there were other steps in between that I may have missed, but tell me more about that phase of your life and when you started your workshops. After I graduated from grad school, I moved to Massachusetts. That's where my husband is from. And we had been dating long distance in grad school. And so as soon as I got my degree, I moved to Massachusetts and we got engaged, got married and bought a house and had our son. And so all the while living there, I was a a professor and was writing. And then when our son was a year old, I was deeply missing my village to help raise this beautiful little being um, because my family was still in the Midwest. And so I convinced my nature loving husband to move from rural Massachusetts to (laughs) the heart of Chicago in a third floor walk up apartment. Uh, I mean, the most impractical place for, uh, you know, people who have a one year old. Mm-hmm. Sun and all the strollers right. and all the things. But so that was our first big leap. Then we lived in Illinois for years and I was working as a full-time professor um, at a university there in Chicago and basically um, speed up to 2020. By that point, I had been a professor for 13 years and I'd worked my way up to finally, you know, having benefits. You would think that once you get there, that's kind of the place you want to stay because it finally feels secure. But on the side, I'd been going to the writing conferences and also coaching women writers. And that just happened naturally. A, uh, yeah, a writer at one of the conferences said, I really like the way you teach when I hear you present and I'm working on this book and I really need help getting it to the finish line. And she was in her late seventies and she said, I want to leave a legacy and I want to 
get this book out in the world, you know, basically before it's too late. I was coaching on the side and teaching writing workshops at organizations um, on nights and weekends. And so by the time 2020 came around, I was at a burnout point because my typical day was waking up at 4.45 a.m., the house was dark. I'd get in my car. I'd drive most of the way to the city. I had about an hour and 15, sometimes hour and a half commute. I would go to a workout place or a yoga studio, get in my movement, and then be in the office at, by 7.30, the latest, teach all day, no breaks, get in my car at 2.15 to speed home to get my son off the school bus at 3.30, and then spend some time. Then, you know, my husband and I would do dinner. He would get home from his office job. And then it was like basically an hour maybe of quality time before then packing all the bags for the next day. Oh my gosh. Rush, rush, rushing. I didn't realize at the time that I had any other options because quite frankly, while everyone thinks that a professor job might be a real goal to achieve. It it was not as well paying as people might think. And this was further shown to me when I got a promotion and <laughs> the offering was a $1,000 a year raise. Mm-hmm. And so I just thought, how can this be that I'm a full-time professor and I do many other gigs in order to make ends meet? So get to 2020, I was burnt out. I welcomed the idea that I didn't have to commute anymore, that I could teach all of my university classes online. And I had like 10 to 12 extra hours in my week. It was incredible. And I just naturally started doing more and more with my coaching. So um, within a span of a few months, my professor job felt like my part-time job and my coaching felt like my full-time job. And that's when I knew I was going to probably make a transition. Mm-hmm. I can hear it in your voice when you're describing the rush to get up at 4.45 and to get through your day. Um, Describe what that feels like, because maybe not everyone knows what that feels like, but it sounds intense. Yeah, I thought that anxiety and regular panic attacks, I thought that that was normal Mm -hmm. because it just became the norm. It became the norm to not taste my food, to huff it down on a drive, to go to teach it another thing. It became normal that my son might be at daycare until almost six at night when he was young. And I knew deep in my heart that that did not feel okay to me. And so I started making changes, honestly, before the pandemic began. I packed all of my teaching into three days a week um, so that the other two, I could be with my son more um, because that way of living, that complete frenetic nervous system just feels like your hair is constantly on fire. It feels like your whole body is on fire all the time and you can never settle or be present with yourself or other people. And it was only when I was teaching that I could be fully present. And it was only when I was with my family that I could really try to be present. And yet I had um, a million to do's in the back of my head. And 
so the whisper started much before the pandemic that this isn't sustainable. But the problem was I didn't see any way around it. So the pandemic suddenly opened up a new avenue. My goodness, the the description of being on fire. That's Mm -hmm. so well said. It's so descriptive. It is vivid. You Mm -hmm. can imagine what that is and how terrifying that can be and how your nervous system doesn't know how to calm down from that if it's in it like seven days a week or five days a week. Um, Mm -hmm. And do you remember a specific moment where you're like, that's it. I just can't do this anymore. Oh my gosh. There were multiple things. One, the whole $1,000 salary raise felt like a slap in the face because I think it amounted to like $10 per paycheck or something, you know, per week. And I just thought, So I'm giving up my time with my child's son for this, Mm -hmm. you know? So that was a major moment of just like, what am I climbing this ladder so hard for? So it was partially that. And it was um, definitely moments of um, when I would have anxiety attacks, um, especially when I was with my family and having them at completely normal times, like the dinner, we're just sitting at the dinner table and this rush would come over me and I would feel like I was having a heart attack. And I was like, this can't be normal. Mm-hmm. Um, so between the fact that I would just think about all I was having to do professionally to make ends meet and then seeing that, okay, and then the time that I am with my family, I can't even be here because I, my body is, is reacting. Um, Like those were some of the big indicators as well as the whisperings in my journal. I I still kept a a pretty regular journal practice Mm -hmm. and, um, I tell the truth in my journal and I was telling the truth to myself for a while that it just like, there has to be another way I've got it. There has to be a different way. And how did you give yourself permission to then, you know, change? It started when my son was going to kindergarten. I just said to my director, I want to get my son off the bus. I want to be the one to get him off the bus. I don't want him going to after school care. I want to be there waiting for him at the bus stop. And she was incredibly supportive, but of course it had to go through the chair um, of the department. And I just said, I don't care what I have to do on the days that I'm here and when I'm here. um, But if we can arrange all my classes back to back, I don't care because I want to be around him. So it was making it home, you know, at 3.30 rather than six o'clock at night. And so that was one of the first changes. And then it was an allowing myself to um, be, in my mind, mediocre. Like I don't have to be the first one in the office. I don't have to be the last one out. I don't have to be on all the committees. It was allowing myself to, in my perfectionist brain, honestly, like slack off a little bit um, because I thought, wait a minute. So I'm getting paid the same amount, whether I'm on, 
you know, 17 committees or two. Mm -hmm. So I started um, committing to less. My teaching always stayed the same. I always give my students my whole heart, but I started seeing what could be stripped away. And then I started doing a lot more advocating for myself, which is not exactly something that was totally modeled because I think my mom is incredible, but I think she also has a bit of scarcity mentality of like, oh boy, like don't rock the boat too much. And I just got to a point where I was like, I have a kid, I have a family, I have to provide for my family and I'm going to ask for what I need in these situations. Doesn't make me an unkind person. It makes me clear about my needs. That is so well said. You really need to show up for your family and ask for what you should be getting compensated for. Absolutely. These are not your own personal expenses. Uh, These are professionally incurred expenses. So very well done on your part. You said something Mm -hmm. earlier. I wanted you to elaborate a little bit. Um, Tell me more about what it means for you to have a perfectionist brain. (laughs) Oh gosh, it is such a blessing and a curse, but Uh I have a very driven personality, which I deeply am grateful for about myself. And yet it can be to my own detriment that I have such high expectations of myself and other people that are just really oftentimes just unmeetable um, and cause me great heartache. So the same perfectionism that allows me to hyper-focus and, and have endurance to write and edit and publish a book can be the same kind of perfectionism that never lets me stop or rest or um, doesn't know when the, that writing is finally finished, like just stop already. You know, it needs to be done. Mm-hmm. Perfectionism is a, the thief of of joy and done is better than perfect often. Um, but I, I read a little story about this in my book that just came out called Come Home to Your Heart and it's called Put the Paintbrush Down. And essentially this is a really good example of how my brain works. So my husband and I went to a painting class, you know, those classes where like, it's a date night, Mm -hmm. Uh, couples go and they paint a canvas together. In this particular one, it would be like one partner paints the trees, the other partner paints the water. And so you're both working on the same picture, but your um, your artistry is combined. And Jamie, my husband, would just paint the trees, put his paintbrush down, have a sip of wine, and like he was enjoying himself. I was touch, touch, touching up just... Right. And I'm just becoming like more and more. "Ah, This has to be right and perfect. And I couldn't put the paintbrush down. And it finally comes to the point of painting the cardinal. And I couldn't find a skinny brush. So suddenly this cardinal was like a pterodactyl. It was gigantic. And I thought, oh, my God, I have to change the trees to make (laughs) to make it so that it's ratioed to the bird. So then I have to change the whole thing. <laughs> and I am just touching up the entire portrait. And Jamie was like, honey, put the paintbrush down already. Right. And this is like a million times a day, every day in my life. And so we have this motto now when he sees me touching up anything, he'll just say, put the paintbrush down. 
I want to know in your mind now, because you've done so much in your life, where do you find the endurance to do this? Because it's a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do think part of it is just in me. So I was on the track team in high school. And when they put me as a sprinter, I was still in the blocks when people were at the finish line. So a sprinter, I am not. But mm-hmm. when they put me in long distance running, I could do that. I I can sustain energy over time rather than just everything in a quick burst. And there's something about writing that I just have a high tolerance for the amount of time that it takes. And I guess I just can't not do it. I can't start a project that I'm deeply passionate about and just let it go. It it just seems impossible to me. That is actually when the other part of me that is not a perfectionist comes through because in order to have the endurance, I have to be really self-compassionate that it's not going to be perfect, that there will be rejections along the way, that um, it's going to take more time than you ever imagined. I have, luckily, equal parts perfection and Mm self-compassion. And that is helpful in staying the course. I I know deep down that for any of the writers that I work with, that talent can only take you so far. You have to have the dedication and endurance to stay the course. And the writers that I coach who have the endurance over the talent – will always succeed. I know I'm not the world's best writer, but I am really dedicated to making a story the best that it can be and then having the courage to put it out in the world even though it is not perfect. So how quickly do you make shifts in your decision making as an entrepreneur now? I mean, there's so much trial and error. When I first went full-time with my LLC, it would be like teach a course. uh, It didn't get enough enrollment or didn't, you know, something was off. Okay. um, Pivot. So I can pivot quickly. Um, I I guess the thing is not to burn the whole house down in the meantime, right? So Mm -hmm. it's like, okay, something about this isn't working. What are the parts that are beneficial, that are successful, um, and pivoting based on those factors. So I think that I can make quick decisions because I take a moment to reflect um, and kind of take stock of, did this work? Did it not work? But I'm human too, and I can also overthink the heck out of something mm-hmm. yes. <laughs> for sure. Yes, yes. I, if overthinking was a job, I'd be a millionaire. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard not to overthink. We're, I don't know if we're wired for super analysis all the time, but yeah, you're absolutely right. I think what helps, I should backtrack for a second. What helps is just having a date at which the thing is going to happen. So I can't overthink it forever. I put a course out in the world. Okay, it starts um, August 10th. All right, well, I can only overthink it up until then. So a lot of times what I do to trick my overthinking part is that if I have an idea for a course or a retreat, before I can talk myself out of it, I'll put it out into the world. 
through my newsletter on my website on social media and just go, okay, this is happening on these dates. Um, so now there's the peer pressure of following through. So I can't him and haw over should I do this or should I not? I just have to put it out there so that the world holds me accountable, essentially. Mm-hmm. I like it. Like a, a self-imposed deadline. You're talking about the workshops and the retreats that you do with your students. And I'm very curious to know, what have you learned from your students? Like the, the stories that they must write and, and talk about are very intimate and may also be very difficult to, to tell. And why is it so important for you to do what you do for your students? Oh, my gosh. I mean... It's everything. The the women who tend to find me and we find each other are women who've been through something really hard and sometimes traumatic. And they tend to be people who are on their own self-growth journeys. So when they're writing their essays and memoirs, um, they're holding really, really vulnerable stories. And so I feel a deep honor that one would even share it with me and then trust me enough to help them put it out in the world. And I think because I was a little girl on the South side of Chicago, like learning about the rest of the world through books, I see the impact that a book and a story can have on a person And so it feels like a mission to me to help these women get their stories out. And they cover some very important topics from adoption to widowhood to um, health journeys to suicide to, oh my gosh, parenting, Mm -hmm. just everything. And it really is a deep trust that I feel when they allow me to work with them um, because the pride that they feel when they put it out in the world and then get letters from readers about how impactful that book or that essay was, it's, it's everything. It's so valuable. It is valuable to society to put out the stories, to have people's voices heard, uh, whether it's in writing or in audiobook format, I think you're you're playing such an important role in helping women put out important stories, the ones that we don't always talk about, like suicide or adoption or the ones that you listed earlier. They're tough mm-hmm. stories and not everyone wants to talk about them. They're usually swept under the rug or forgotten or it's too painful to talk about. So maybe writing is a form of therapy for some people as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do, do you find yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah, I feel that I, I find that they go through stages. So first they write to process it themselves. And then I talk to them about, okay, now it's your job. If you do want to put it out in the world, then you have to take these essentially therapeutic journal entries and craft them into a narrative that readers and listeners want to read and hear. And that actually helps. It almost gets it out of their body. And now they're looking at it and making meaning of their story. So they're still like getting deep therapeutic benefits. But then now they're going, how can and will this help other people 
And that's a big part of it. And sometimes they're talking about their stories on my podcast or yes, audiobooks, or they put their book out in the world or they publish their essay in a major magazine. And suddenly there is this looking at the thing. It's no longer living inside of their bodies anymore, causing this pulsing pain. Of course, it will always be there, the the result of whatever hardship, but it is no longer taking up all of this space inside of their bodies. And now it's out of them and a tool for other people to use. So whether it's other people who are learning about infertility and how to advocate for themselves or, okay, um, reading a book uh, by one of my authors who uh, went through her MS journey and learned how to deal with it through holistic and functional medicine becomes a tool for readers. That's very insightful. I'm, uh, my jaw is, my mouth is open listening to this because I am going, wow, it's an incredible form of therapy. It's an incredible form of sharing. And uh, I, I love what you're doing. I just wanted to say that. Um, one more thing. And um, I'm very curious because, you know, you were first and foremost a writer and a professor. And now do you see yourself also as an entrepreneur? Definitely. And, and I wear that title with pride because while I didn't go to business school, I have a deep sense of what my audience needs and how I compare that with my skills and expertise and try to give them workshops and retreats that are exactly what they need. Um, And many of the times it's me just thinking about what have I loved as a student and what do I want? If, If I were looking for a retreat, what description would I read and go sign me up, <laughs> right? <laughs> so I'm basically just taking all the goodness that has been poured into me um, and thinking, okay, how can I give that to other people? And then from the entrepreneurial lens, I feel really, really grateful that we can have the kinds of jobs that we do where we make our own way. We have the schedules that we want. We put out the offerings that we want to do, that we have agency and we have the ability to do so much goodness without feeling the weight and pressure of a boss or a corporation um, that can sometimes stifle us. So I certainly now identify as an entrepreneur. How have you changed over the years? Do you see the evolution? Do you have any descriptors for that? Hmm. Yeah. Um, my values have completely shifted. I am someone who used to really love the accolades that success brought because I feel like I felt like I had something to prove. As someone coming from a working class background, as being the first person in my family to graduate college and go to grad school, it felt like a feather in my cap each time. You know, it was like, oh, I'm I'm a professor now and I got this rank and I'm doing this thing. But uh, the reward 
oftentimes for the accolade felt empty. And it, it led to just this deep striving mentality. And then it didn't feel like it's like the carrot was always being dangled and then you never get the carrot or when you do, you don't feel satisfied by the carrot. And Mm -hmm. I'm going, well, what is this all for? So I think the biggest change really happened in the midst of the pandemic. My father was diagnosed with cancer and he passed away very quickly a year later. And yeah, it was so so unexpected and um, he was 57 when he passed and he had worked his whole life I mean weekends nights he was such a hard worker and yet um, so much of that work was at the expense of so many other things Um, and so he was working hard to get that retirement to finally do what he wanted to do and he never got that he wanted to move to a sunny place He had signed a lease to move to Florida um, about a month before he passed, and he was packing to move. And, you know, he was going to finally do more of the deep sea fishing he loved and all these things. And when he passed, that had a major impact on me and my family that we weren't going to do our original plan, which was just work, work, work and wait to retirement to move to a sunny place. We wanted to accelerate things. And so I think a lot of my striving myths were kind of busted at that point. Like, does it fully lead to the satisfaction you want? Not always. And so we relocated. We now live in Florida, coincidentally. Mm -hmm. And my life is one of, I will always be passionate and put my energy into writing and my business, but not at the expense of myself or my family. And I want to live an intentional life now, not later. Wow. It is um, moments like that that really make you realize it's now. We have to do things now. You don't wait till later. If there's something important, if there's something inspiring, something you need to do, you do it now. Don't wait Mm -hmm. till retirement. If you can help Mm -hmm. it, really, if you have the means. Yeah. So many of the women that I coach who want to have a book or an essay out in the world, you know, uh, I press them to to get it done and out and not have these stories living on their laptop because many of these women want to leave a legacy through their writing and it's like the time is now put it out now there's so many there's so many stories from my own ancestors I wish I had now so it feels like this intentional way of living not only feels like a way of living, but also it translates into the writing of, I don't him and haw so much anymore about like, is that word perfect? It's like, you have an important message, put it out in the world now. I'm not going to go about things recklessly or without thought, but I'm no longer going to wait on things so long. And I encourage the people I work with to really, really take on their writing dreams and make them a reality finally, because so many of them have just been sitting on a book or a story for a decade and it's time to get it out in the world. Yes. Yes. I encourage that too. One last thing, um, as you were talking earlier about when you were younger, walking 
to school or to the library and you had a book in your hand and you were reading as you were walking. I just had the image of what children do today with their phones. But you were, you were doing it back then with a book. So you were the original scroller. <laughs> That's so true. And now it's a, a taste of my own medicine. My Our son loves reading and we have to tell him no books at dinner. <laughs> we have to tell him like he'll be in the bathroom for a while, you know, and some one of us is waiting to take a shower or something. And I'll say, are you reading in there? <laughs> So, yeah, yeah, I guess it's a good distraction to have, though. That's right. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. Thank you so much to Nadine Kenny Johnstone. You can learn more about WriteWell through the link in the episode description. If you enjoyed my conversation with Nadine, we would love it if you could please rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Reviews help us to reach other listeners who would benefit from hearing Nadine's story, and it truly means a lot to us. And So She Left is made by Consulta and Ethan Lee. We'll be back next Wednesday with a new episode. Our music is by Chris Zabriskie, edited for your enjoyment. You can find a list of all the songs you heard here in the episode notes. I'm Catherine Vasilopoulos, and thanks for listening. Hmm, I really, really loved this conversation. I will put all the links in the show notes so that you can check out the other episodes and also know that I am gearing up for my 2023-2024 workshops and retreats. I'm in planning mode right now. And if you want some input on the kinds of workshops and retreats you would like for me to offer and you want to be on the wait list so you get priority enrollment, well, I have just the link for you. I'll put it in the show notes, but it's a wait list for these workshops and retreats where you can just fill out a super short form and check which things you're interested in. And then there's a text box where you can also share any suggestions you have about the kinds of things you're looking for and your availability. It's a wonderful way to really tell me what it is that you want, because I love when my offerings are a blend of my passions and your needs and desires. That's the best kind of magic. I'll put the link in the show notes for that. And then I will be unveiling those workshops and retreats in the next few weeks, but those on the wait list will be the first to know. So you'll want to get on it. All right, friends, thank you for listening. Thank you, my producer, Michelle Rado. And remember everyone, every heart has a story and every story has a heart. See you next week.